Again, a welcome to each of you this morning. God bless you for being here, and I trust that each of you can experience God's goodness, his grace, and his peace. Standing on his promises. Appreciated our songs this morning. The scripture that Larry read there in Ephesians 5 is a passage maybe that we often think of or often is used at a wedding. And realize this is not a wedding today. But nonetheless, we all are a bride. I don't know as men as we often think about that, but as Bible-believing saints, we are the bride of Christ. That's the church. And we are and should be preparing for the great wedding feast that is going to be for his bride. That is something that I hope that each one of us is anticipating. God has given us a lot of instruction on how to live our lives. And today our text is from 1 Peter chapter 3, and you can turn there if you like. I invite you to turn there. Peter, or, uh, Larry read from Ephesians, but our text is from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And the message this morning is on God's order in the home. And in this text, it specifically talks about the wife and the husband and their relationship toward each other. And if you recall, I've been preaching through 1 Peter in the last few times. It's been on submission. The one time it was submission to our civil government and then also submission servants being submissive to their masters. And so today we're looking at specifically submission again as far as the wife and then also the husband's responsibility also. And again, just to give you the meaning of submission, I know I've, I've shared this with you before, but submission is the attitude and action of willingly and wholeheartedly respecting, yielding to, and obeying the authority of another. That's submission. I'm going to read this text here so we get a picture of the, the verses that we're looking at. First Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and a wearing of gold and a putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. As you notice here in this passage, he starts out by saying, Likewise, ye wives, and he addresses the wives there in the next number of verses, and then again in verse 7, he says, Likewise, ye husbands. We probably all heard this, 
this thing or it's been said that so goes the home, so goes the world. And I think in this day and age that we live in, that's relevant. It's true. God's design for order in the home has been distorted. It's been forgotten, and we can see the effects of this with the breakdown in, our, in the homes in our society. And not only in our society, but even in so-called professing Christian homes. It seems like for everything that God ordains, the enemy will try to make a counterfeit. And his goal is to prevent us from receiving the full benefits or blessings of God's will. And the family unit has been breaking down for generations, uh, both in the world and in the church. To me, it's, it's devastating and, it's, and sad to think about that half of the marriages end in divorce in our society. And not only in society, but also in professing Christian churches. And so what does that do to a generation? This only has happened probably in the last 40 years. As we think of how fast that deteriorates and erodes away at a home when there is that kind of separation. God has given specific instruction and order of how a husband and wife are to live together and his headship order. God designed the home to be a safe place where family can learn, they together can learn and grow and thrive together in unity. Psalm 127.1 says, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. And so God's order in the home starts where? It starts with God. Godly homes, godly order in the home starts with God. And so first of all, I want us to think about God's headship order. And you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 if you like. I'm just going to look at the one verse there. As we think of God's headship order, this is a familiar passage in a scripture that we think of when we think of the headship building. But here in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, it makes it very clear about God's order, the headship order. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. And so maybe we'll just do a quick rundown of this. I think we're all familiar with this. So who is at the top? Can you, can you tell me who is at the top? It's God. Who's next? Christ. And then? Man? Weren't too sure about that? And then who? Spirit. 
woman. And so that's God's order. Very basic, right? We, we know that. We've been taught this all our lives. God, Christ, man, and woman. Does that mean that anybody is better than the other person? No, it's God's order. It's simply God's order. This is how he has created it. It makes it very clear. And if God the Father and Jesus Christ are missing from this equation, what do you get? You end up with, really it's the idolatry of man. The man takes on the burden that he was designed that he was not designed to carry on his own. So if you picture with me a triangle, you picture a triangle, and if you have the man and the woman at the bottom, and then you have a triangle pointing like that, and it points to God. So the man and the woman are down here, and when they're connected and everything's connected, who's it point to? It points to God the Father. And there's a realm, there's a protection in that. When when it, when a Marriage is functioning properly when a man and woman are connected to each other, but also they're connected to God, and he is the one that is over them. There's a protection there. And biblical authority is never given for the the advantage of the one in authority, or even so that he can dominate those under authority. Rather, God delegates authority for the blessing and protection of those under authority so that they will become all that God wants them to be. This is God's unique design. It's not something that man came up with. Because we, we can, you can look at society and you realize how man tries to take things into their own hands and do it their way, but it never works. It never works. God's headship order is a creation principle. In the beginning, when God created the things each day, he created each thing with unique design and order. And as we observe history, or you look at how things function, um, God is a God of order. You can look at the stars and uh, the birds and the grass and the trees and, and all this all these things in creation, there, there is incredible order. And many of these things can be understood simply because of the predictable nature of things that God has created. Everything functions properly. God is a God of order and, and specific design. And when it came to creating mankind, God said there in Genesis 1.26, he said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God instituted an order of things on earth that reflected the order of heaven. And God chooses to display himself in three distinct persons of the Godhead. But they're entirely equal in their attributes and all the working in harmony to fulfill the divine purpose. And as we know that the Trinity, you have the God, the Father, and God, the Son, and, and the Holy Spirit. And they're all equal, and yet each one has their specific rule and order. 
the thing that they're intended to do. There's order in God's creation. There's order in God's divine realm. And God instituted marriage and also designed it for order in that relationship. And as we well know that from the very beginning of creation, the, the home has been under attack. Satan attacked the home by, by tempting Adam and Eve there in the garden. And Satan will still try to attack the homes because it is there if he can get, if he can destroy the home that has an impact on so many things. If the home falls, the church fails. And when the church fails, the nation also does. It affects, it's just a rippling effect. As we look at this text here in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter teaches us the, the characteristics of a godly home. And I want to look at a number of those things. The characteristics of a godly home. When functioning under God's headship order, there is an outworking that is amazing. And Peter lays this out for us. First of all, he addresses the wife there. In verse 1, he says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husband. There are three things that Peter mentions here to the wife. And the first one is submission. The second one is then also one, a caution on outward adornment. And the third one is a meek and quiet spirit. And maybe, in a sense, all three of these can feel like a negative thing to a woman. And it's not my intent that the women here today feel like they're being attacked. But I, I want, to the best of my ability, to, to present this because it is God's word and design and order for a marriage. Submission is something that a man needs to do just as much as a woman does. Remember we said it's God and then it's Jesus and then it's man and woman. And so submission is something that a man needs to do just as much or maybe even more than a woman. Christ submits to God. And if you think about this, Christ submits to God who is perfect and good in every way. Man submits to Christ And Christ, we know, is perfect and good in every way. But how does that change a little bit from Christ to God? That's perfect both ways. And for man to submit to Christ, well, we know who's not perfect in that picture, right? Man is not the perfect one, so it's not perfect and good each way. And so there you have a little bit of a, step down, I guess you could say, and then it's man or woman to man. And there do you have, is each one perfect and good in each way? Well, we know that it's not. And yet it's possible to work when it is under God's realm. So in a sense, women 
have the more difficult role as they submit to a head that is not perfect. As men, we are submitting to a perfect head. For the women, they are not submitting to a perfect head. And there are things that we can learn from Jesus and his submission. Jesus submitted to his parents. And if you think about it, did that put him in a box? Did it put Jesus in a box to be submissive to his parents? It still didn't hinder him at all to become what God was calling him to do. We know the story of when he was in the temple at 12 years of age. And he reminded his mother what he was here to do. He, I believe he was submissive to them, but it still did not change what he could do for God. Ephesians 5, 22 and 20 through 24, there were Larry read. It says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so that the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So why submission? He says there, it's to be as unto the Lord. As the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. So the one verse he says, be submissive in everything. Colossians there says, as it is fit in the Lord. And in the context of 1 Peter 3, there, there it gives, it's under, in the, gives you the picture of those women whose husbands are unbelievers. And he is still encouraging them to be submissive. And why would he ask them to do that? And he, and he says that simply so that the husband, who, the, for the unbelieving husband, that he would observe his wife's submission and it would draw him to the Lord. So submission here is not just under certain circumstances, but submission is something that, as Paul and Peter both bring it out, is in everything. And yes, I know we, we realize that there's times when a person cannot do what everything that a, an unbeliever requires. And yet there's, there's room for that, that still that having that, the right attitude brings a sense of submission. Submission involves respecting your husband. It includes the desire to please the one over you. A few things that submission is not. As I mentioned before, submission does not imply that a wife is of less value or inferior to her husband. And I find this in our home. There's, there's some things that my wife is much better at than I am. And so I would rather leave her do those things. And to recognize that it is a gift that she has and to let her use it for the benefit of our marriage. Does that mean that she's not submissive to me? Not when I give her that authority to do that. And she does it under the realm of being under God's realm. And so being submissive does not mean that you cannot exercise your gifts. It doesn't imply passivity 
a wife can be submissive and still actively try to influence her husband for good. Because sometimes our wives have a better intuition for something than what we as men have, and we need to be willing to listen and take some advice. Submission does not require a wife to bury her spiritual gifts. And as you look in the scripture about women, there's many gifted, spiritual gifted women that uh, were used in, in the Bible, in the scripture. If, if you look at the Priscilla and Aquila, they are mentioned a number of times in the scripture. And whose name always comes first, except, I think, except for one time. Priscilla's name is always before Aquila. And I don't know what significance that has, but she was a, a lady that had a lot of positive impact on people. You have Timothy's grandmother and mother who played key roles in, in teaching him, teaching Timothy the scriptures. And so women have a huge ministry in influencing their children to follow the Lord. Another characteristic of a godly marriage is in verse 4. Peter says, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. And this is something that is the inner beauty of a woman. Now realize that prior to this, there it mentions in verse 3 about the outward adorning. And I'll be referring to, to that later. But for now, we're focusing on the godly characteristics of a woman. A meek and quiet spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working in a godly woman's life. And the, the word translated as gentle or meek here means not insistent on one's own rights or not pushy, not demanding one's own way. And I find it interesting, this is the same word that is used in the Beatitudes in, in, uh, where Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Peter gives us the picture of a woman whose emotions and her actions are under control. She is Christ-like. And that's the unique thing about God's creation or his design of man and woman and how he has created each one differently and yet uniquely. I think women are gifted more with the thing of having a gentle and, and, a, and a meek spirit compared to men. In fact, it says in, in about Jesus, Jesus is described as a gentle and meek in spirit. Then here in verse 6, it also gives the example of Sarah obeying Abraham and respecting him as her authority. And there were times that it would appear like, like Abraham didn't make the best decisions, especially when they were traveling and depending on where they would go, we know how that at least twice that he would tell the people that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. And he did that to protect, he said, to protect her and himself, I think. But nonetheless, even despite that, it says here about Sarah that Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. She respected him as his leader and as his protector and provider. She honored him despite his mistakes. Now I want to focus 
on the characteristics of a godly husband. And verse 7 says, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. And I think we would all recognize that this thing of submission is far too often abused. And many men have taken their, their what they call their God-given rule as the authority of their woman. They have taken that too far. And I believe that we as men need to be an example in submission. As heads of the home and, and, of, our, and of our wife, we have a responsibility to, to submitting to Christ. We have a role to play in God's order just as much as women do. And I think as, as we submit to Christ, that this paves a way for the women in our lives to submit as well. The man's role in the household as a husband and as a father is not a right. It's a responsibility. It's what God has given us as men to do. It's a responsibility. And there's sacrifice involved. He is called, a man is called to serve his family as Christ served the church. Because when a husband is disconnected from Christ. And God, his father, how can he fulfill his calling? How can he know God's vision and purpose for his family? And as you look at this text here in 1 Peter 3, I realize that there's a number of verses that address the women. And you could say, well, why, why is that? He only has one verse for the husband and why six for the ladies? And I, I think it was simply because of who Peter was addressing. But if you go back to Ephesians 5, where Larry read, there in those verses, it talks a lot more to the men than the women. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And then it goes on to say why Jesus died for the church and the impact that this has on a person's life. And then verse 28 says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. And so it Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. To me, that's the highest calling that a man can get. Loving their wife as Christ loved the church. And when you think about how Christ loved, that he was willing to go all the way. He was willing to give his life for you and I so that we can live a life free from sin. So that we can live in victory. And we are to love our wives in such a way that Christ did. And I think that all you women sitting here, I think you realize that none of, your, none of us are perfect over here. And so when I think of us loving as Christ loved, how are we even capable of doing that? It's only because of what Jesus has done that we are capable of that. And still... I know I fall short of this, of loving as Christ loved the church. Jesus loved the church so much that he was willing to give it all so that we can have eternal life. And so as husbands, it's our responsibility to provide and protect our wives spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Colossians 3.19, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Bitterness will chip away at love. It gives the idea to not be harsh against them. 
Again, back to verse 7 there, it says, Husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Dwell with them according to knowledge. We are to know our wife. We're to know what they enjoy. And as men, we can, we can kind of get away from the daily grind of home. I shouldn't say the daily grind, but the activities, maybe the stress, the pressure. We can go to work and we can get away from those things. But as the woman has the responsibility to, to be there for the children, and yet we are called to be dwelling with them according to knowledge. And I think when we know our wife, when we respect her, we will also be there to help in times of need. In a godly marriage, honor, or couples honor their differences. And this verse here it says, or it mentions them as them being as unto the weaker vessel. So what does it mean by the woman being the weaker vessel? I don't think we can use this verse or any other verse to teach that male superiority or, or female inferiority is, is anything. I mean, God in God's eyes, we are equal. But it does say here that she is the weaker, it mentions about the weaker vessel. And as you think about women, women are usually not out there doing the hard physical labor. I don't think I ever saw on a construction site when all my years I've been doing drywall, I, I never saw a woman out there carrying a 16-foot piece of drywall by themselves. Or you don't see a lady at, at the peak when they're setting the trusses. You don't see the woman up there at the peak and, and fastening the trusses. Um, a woman is usually not out there doing the heavy work. Uh, for football, you don't, we don't usually put, you don't usually see the women as the linemen or the linebackers. That's not really a spot for the women. A woman is the weaker vessel. That's who they are. That's how God created them. We know that a, that a woman is more delicate and more fragile. So does that mean that they're lesser just because they are weaker? Not at all. A woman is more delicate and more fragile. I even think about it when, when, uh, when men or ladies get together. Think of a, of a mug and what kind of mug a woman likes to drink out of and what kind of mug a man will drink out of. A lady wants a delicate, fragile mug, something pretty, something with design. And, and a man, he simply wants a mug with some substance, you know, with just a, give me a good old-fashioned mug. But that's just the difference of men and women. Women tend to be more relational and a lot more caring and sensitive than what men are. Men are a lot more independent and unrelational. A number of weeks ago, we were at Penn Valley for the men's seminar, and there was a number of you there. And if you remember, there was one time when we came back, there, there was break time or noon time or something, and men started coming into the auditorium it was time to soon get started, and so a few men dribbled in. You know, you know, one man sat over there. There was one man over there, and one in the front. There was about a handful of men there, and they were spread all over the building. Not one of them was remotely close 
And so if this would have been women, where would have the women been sitting? Probably all on one bench, right next to each other. But the men, they were spread out. That's kind of how men are, a lot less relational. So is that strange? We're just different. It doesn't mean we're any, that women are any lesser or men are better. It's different. That's who God has made us. It's how God created us. As men and husbands, we are to honor our wife. And in a spiritual sense, men and women are equal. We are heirs together of the grace of life. Then also I wanted to notice how that Peter gives a warning and some instruction to both the wife and the husband in this passage. And he mentions some of the weaknesses and tendencies that both women and men have. And as I mentioned before here, he, he addresses the outward adorning. Peter recognizes that this is a weakness and it's a tendency that women have to give extra attention to their outward appearance. Verse 3 says, Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and a wearing of gold or a putting on of apparel. And so he gives a caution here on where the focus is. And he gives encouragement to focus on the inner beauty and not on the outward appearance. There is something within a woman that wants to be beautiful. And that's not all wrong. That's something within you. A woman wants to be beautiful. But, that, when, but he gives a caution of when the focus is on that and where that tends to go. If you have any little girls, you know that they love to play what? Dress up. Little girls like to do that. Do little boys do that? Uh, very rarely, seldom, will they play dress up. But it's something about a woman who they want to be beautiful. That's how God has made them. But he gives warning about that. And I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 3. And there's some verses here that I want us to notice. Here the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 to 23. Here the prophet Isaiah is condemning how the women were adorning themselves and were more interested in the latest fads and fashions. And, and he gives a fairly descriptive picture of how they were dressing and putting on all the extras. And I'm not implying that this is where our people are at today. That's not what I want to be applying. But I want us to think about it. And, and the question is, how did these people get to this point? I'm going to read verses 16 through 23 and think about it. How did they get to this point? Moreover, the Lord saith, because the dangers, sorry, because the daughters of Zion are halty and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the bravery of tinkling ornaments about their feet and their cowls and their round tires like moon. The chains and the bracelets and the mufflers, the bonnets and the ornaments of the legs, the headbands and the tablets and the earrings, 
the rings and nose jewels, the changeable suits of apparel and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pins, the glasses and the fine linen and the hoods and the veils. And as you look at this list of things that he mentions, we can think that we're not anywhere close to this point. And yet, are we free from all these things? And again, I ask the question, how did the people get to this point? How did they get to this point? Was it all at once? I want you to think about that. How did they get to that point? Usually these things do not happen all at once, but it's a step at a time. And as we do each step, we sort of get desensitized to that, and then we move to the next, and we move to the next, and we move to the next. And we can look at our society and how, we wonder how did they come to that point of doing some of the things that they do. This gives a description of what you see of how you see people today. And this was written how many years ago? It's been a struggle since creation or since the fall of man. As men, what is our role and responsibility in this area? And we can tend to think that we're not impacted in this area so much. And it's easier for us men to blend in with our society and not look that much different. And so I want to challenge us. Are we making it any easier for our women? It starts with us. I really believe that as men, we're responsible for these things. We are giving account to God, and so we are responsible for the women under us. God created man first, and he made him responsible to provide, to protect, and guard the woman. And we have a responsibility to be an example and to lead. And one of the weaknesses that we as men have is to be passive and not take full responsibility for what God has called us to do. And so I want to challenge us with that. And also at the the last verse, or the last phrase in verse 7, he says there... I find this interesting. There it says that your prayers be not hindered. And I'm not going to take the time to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, but we were actually looking at some of these verses in our instruction class this morning there in 2 Timothy 2, um, 8 through 10, and then also here in 1 Peter 3 about this adornment thing. But I find it fascinating how that both of these passages, where it, and if you go back to, 2 Timothy 8 through 10, there it also is talking about the men and prayer and about the ladies' outward adornment. I find it fascinating. There's two scriptures like that where it has the two in the same context, prayer and the outward adornment. And I don't know that I can fully understand or explain to you why that is, but I, I challenge you to look into that Because as men, we tend to be weak in in our relationships and how we relate to people. And I am, I'm amazed. And and encouraged how my wife can relate 
to people, and I say also better at relating to God and her prayer life. And so to me, that's my challenge that I want to leave with you about men's prayer life, your prayer life. I think it's a weakness that maybe as men we have. Women are more relational. And I don't know if that's all that it's worth saying, but as men, if we do not fulfill our God-given responsibility, if there's anger in our lives, if there's sin, any kind, uh, whatever it might be, sexual addiction, those things affect our prayers, and it affects our women. It affects our wife. And so these things that we deal with, it comes out. In 2 Timothy there, it, it talks about lifting up holy hands without anger and wrath. And so when those things, those, those issues that we have, as men, it affects our prayers. It really does. It affects what we could, who we could be and who we should be. And so a godly marriage is a picture, is to be a picture of Christ and his church. The challenge for us is what kind of picture is your marriage? Is it one when people will look at you, they can say, wow, now that's a picture of Jesus and the church. That's what kind of picture our marriage is to be, Jesus and the church. And to me, that's sobering when I think of that in our responsibility. I realize that not everyone here today is married. And that's not God's calling for everyone. But no matter what, no matter where you're at in life, many of these principles that I talked about today apply to each one of us. Not everyone is called to marriage, but God is calling everyone to himself, no matter where you are in life. God wants to draw you to himself so that you can be a testimony. God bless you, and let's kneel for prayer.